I want to start tonight with going through three verses of a psalm, and that's Psalm 92. Uh, for those of you familiar with the song we do, Evergreen, it comes from that psalm. And it says this in Psalm 92, verses 12, 13, and 14. It says, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like the cedars, or like a cedar, in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bear fruit in old age, and they shall be fresh and flourishing, from which we get the, the idea of it being evergreen. There becomes a situation where as we start to develop sort of our religious practices, we've said yes to Jesus, we know that that's where it starts. The foundation of Jesus is laid in our lives, where now we start building a structure for our lives. And as we build a structure for our lives, uh, there becomes this aspect where we really want to make sure that we're not just building habits for habit's sake. We're not just doing things because we do them. And then somewhere after all of that, then we actually start to decorate our lives with more than just sort of simple habits or structure to our life. But now, what am I going to do? What are my ambitions? What are my priorities? Interestingly enough, that same thing takes place in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of 1 Kings. Now, we know, if you've read ahead, a bit of a spoiler alert, that Solomon, though, has really, really great and shiny moments. There are certainly moments that aren't. And as a matter of fact, he, he, he ends his life much worse than he started it. And I'd like to consider, that means every chapter, we're looking for clues, little hints of things that show us what it could look like for a person that starts off really well and ends up in the toilet. Now, you know, in the end of it all, you know, when we talk about Saul, for instance, uh, the man who preceded David, and you, if, if you were to ask, let me ask you, do you really think that you'll see him in heaven? More than likely, your answer might be, I don't know. I hope so. How about David? And you're like, oh yeah, confident I'd see David there. Well, what about Solomon? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I hope so. And the reason I say that is the failure is that we just don't know. I mean, there are certain people that you just kind of know that once they're off the scene, you just go, man, I just know that I'm going to stand with this guy somewhere before the throne of God. And the real difference between them is where they ended. It wasn't that they were without fault or failure. It's where they ended in the end of it all. Well, consider this. Last chapter, and we've been going through, in essence, a very technical chapter. You've read through it. It's, I mean, let me ask you, can anyone remember any, any of the things that were built or formed or made in this chapter, in chapter 7? Crazy, you read through all of those verses. Now, there was a laver. You remember that? Does anyone know what a laver does? What, is, what does it mean to lave? In Spanish, yeah, or in Portuguese. It means to wash. It's a washer, in essence. There was a thing called a sea. What in the world is that? Yeah, that's going to be fun. What else? Can you remember anything else? How about a couple of pillars? You didn't even names them. Remember that? The Achin and Boaz? And if you're looking at me blankly, I'm like, you guys, you guys did just read the chapter, right? Just want to make sure. Or did you slip into a coma? Well, well, consider this. In chapter 6, I remind you, it was sort of like the structure of the house of the Lord was being built. And right in the middle of that, God sort of inserts in verses 11 through 13 that God says, Solomon, I need you to obey. Do you remember that? He's like, look, if you obey me and you do what I ask you, or do what I tell you, actually. I don't think God is just asking. If you do what I command you, well, then I will fulfill all the promises I've already promised. 
I have all of these great plans for your life, and I really want to bless you, and I really want to love on you in ways that you're just going to be overwhelmed, and I need your obedience. It isn't like your obedience forces God to do that. God is already doing that. Might I just say this? Your disobedience gets in the way of it. And understand, as the structure of our lives are being built, God is going to say, I want you to recognize that success is in obedience. If you just do what I say, you're going to be so blessed. It's pretty simple. In this chapter, however, we move from this aspect of the structure now, as, you, as we kind of see this. Now we see that, that God is inserting now in verses 1 through 12, this really kind of interesting aspect where we're seeing in the middle of, okay, Solomon built this and this vestibule and he built this. And then he built these buildings on the sides, if you remember, covered everything in gold. And he built this box for God and, and all that. And he goes, and then we have these verses about Solomon and his own stuff. Did you get that in the first 12 verses? And we get this word at the beginning of it, but. Now, there's a good but and a bad but. Don't get weird with it. It's the, it all depends on what happened before that. If what happened before that was bad, a but's a good thing, right? I mean, as I was, this was horrible and this was horrible, but yeah, that means it's going to turn around to the other direction. But if what happened before this was good, then a but's a bad thing. And the last thing we read is it took Solomon seven years to build God's house. But, which means, well, this isn't going to be so good then. And might I just, just sort of assert this to you? In the last chapter, as the structure is being built, God wants to make sure that there is a heart to obey him. In other words, that he's Lord. As we build the structure of our life, it's not just I do these things because I have to. I do them because I love my Lord. But this chapter, God is going to address the aspect of priorities. And I remind you again, in Psalm 92, 13, it says, those who are planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of their God. Now, what we have in this chapter, if you think about it, is Solomon building his own thing and then Solomon doing God's thing. And the question then is, as he inserts that in here, is we're comparing the two now. Because he could have just went, this is what the outside looked like. Now he built these things on the outside that were sort of furniture, and then these were the inside pieces of furniture. And then we'll talk about Solomon's stuff after that. But he throws it right in the middle as if we're going to compare the two. And that's kind of where we're at in this chapter. And, and so look at it with me. And let's see what it looks like. But I do want to remind you that when it came to building the tabernacle, the ark came first. Then that, that room, the ark room came first. And then we came from intimacy outward. This one, remember, went from the structure inward. And that was sort of the last thing on it, if you will. So Solomon, now again, it took Solomon seven years to build the house of the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 1. But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. Stop. You kind of get the idea here already that God is comparing the two himself. Now, how could it take, in essence, almost twice as long to do your own thing than it would be to do God's thing? And God had already drawn blueprints for his own. Well, here's where we start going in regards to the aspect of priorities through this entire thing. Is that God did not say it was bad for you to build your own house. But God wanted to make sure that his was more your priority. In the simplest sense, God's house means God's at the center. Your house means you're at the center of your life. Which one do you spend more time investing in? And there are going to be three major aspects of what's being built. That's why I asked, by the way. Well, notice what it says. In verses 1 through 12, we get Solomon's investment in his own life. He, He took 13 years to build his own house. So he finished 
all his house. Well, all his house. Of course, right? Why would he just finish some of it? Well, let me tell you what all his house looks like. He also, beside that, built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. Now, the Lord's house was 60 by 20 by 20. Solomon's house was 100 by 50 by 50. Which one's larger? Okay. Yeah, Solomon's house. As a matter of fact, in essence, it's almost twice the size. And he says, And it was paneled with cedar. Above the beams were 45 pillars, 15 to a row. 15 pillars. Think of the majesty you see here. There were windows with beveled frames, three rows. The window opposite window, it's sort of the same as the temple, by the way, in three tiers. And all the doorways and posts had rectangular frames. And window was opposite window in the three tiers. Now notice it's called the house of the forest. The house of the forest of Lebanon. Notice it doesn't say the house of the forest in Lebanon. Did you notice that? If it was in Lebanon, where would it be in Lebanon? That was actually a very simple question, right? Got that. But Lebanon wasn't Solomon's territory. That was the king that Hiram, by the way, who had given him all the cedars in the first place. So why did they call it the house of the forest of Lebanon? Because when you walked in his house, it was big and majestic like the forest in Lebanon. I mean, what you saw were these giant pillars that looked like giant trees. You walk in this place, you're like, man, this place is like a forest. Look at all this wood. And I want to remind you that wood has never been that plentiful in all of Israel. In essence, it was a fairly rich thing to use. And Solomon is using an awful lot of it here. Now, it'll tell us in 1 Kings 10, by the way, that he mentions 100, I'm sorry, 500 gold shields that are going to be hung in the house of the forest of Lebanon. And that it was, in essence, the place that held his armory in, in Isaiah 22, for what it's worth. So he's got this big house, in other words, his armory, where he keeps basically, you know, all of his weapons and such. Verse 6, it says, he also made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, its width 30 cubits, and in front of them was a portico with pillars and a canopy that was in front of them. Pillars, pillars, pillars. There were pillars at his house all over the place, rows and rows of them, 45. There were pillars all over this thing. That it, it's like, wow, his house was full of pillars, and he still made a place called the Hall of Pillars with more pillars than the other pillars. Strange, how many pillars are going to be uh, sort of prominent at the house of the Lord? Two. Remember, he names them. So I get this idea. Now there's those pillars on his approach, walking basically 25 meters or 75 feet. Uh, and that's a long walk, if you will, through that. And it is, in essence, 15 meters or 45 feet wide versus, again, the two that stand in front of the temple. And then he made the, not only that, but he made the hall for the throne and then the hall of judgment so that he can sit and judge as the high priest. If, or I should say it this way, as the Supreme Court judge, really, actually. Then he might judge, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. The biggest difference, by the way, if you were to look at Solomon's buildings versus God's building, the biggest difference, of course, is going to be that, this, the, that the temple is covered in gold, floor to ceiling, all gold, where Solomon's is not. But if you were to strip away that gold, no doubt the house of Solomon, the houses of Solomon are going to way outshine the Lord's house because they're huger. They're bigger and they're more majestic in just about every way. And the house that he dwelt had another court out inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this for the 
the hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken his wife. They were, and notice it says, and these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws, inside and out, from the foundation to the eaves, and also outside to the great court. The foundation was costly stones, large stones, 10 cubits. Now think about that's 5 meters or 15 feet. And some 8 cubits, that's 4 meters or, if you will, 12 feet. And above were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. Hmm. Certainly Solomon did not want to just make the house of the Lord magnificent. But he also wanted to make his own, if you will, even more so. Now, strangely enough, now two things start showing up. And I can't help but look at these things because God's making a comparison of materials here. I don't know if you've noticed this. First of all, I remind you back in Psalm 92 where we started this whole thing. Verse 12 says, The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Got it. And then the next verse right after that's he was planted in the house of the Lord. So he had already led us in Psalm 92 to a palm tree and then to a cedar. And then he goes, now, you want to look like that? You want to be established like that? Be planted in God's house. But then I look at this and I realize that he's got this thing where he's made his house and his house is entirely of wood. But then God's house is all these precious stones and gold and silver. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I've heard that somewhere before. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, by the way, when Paul is, is speaking to a carnal church, he says there's only one foundation that can be laid, and that is Jesus Christ. But once that foundation is laid, you can choose to build with gold, silver, and precious stones or with wood, hay, and stubble. And he says those are your choices. And then he says after all of that, because he'll say what the result of that, and then he'll say, don't you realize you're the temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you? So get this, God drew up a blueprint. The moment that you said yes to Jesus, the moment that Adam said yes to Jesus, or Daniel, or Bruno, or Suzy, or Deborah, the moment that you said yes to Jesus, God laid out some blueprints and he says, I am taking that lean-to shack of your life and I'm going to rip that thing up down to the foundation, tear it all up, and pull it out. And then you're like, wait a minute, God, I wanted you to make my life better. And now it's like all these things are leaving me and all this stuff's gone. What's up? And then you look and you're like, even the core of it all is like a big pit. And you know what that looks like? It looks like a grave is what it looks like if you think about it. He's like, even the foundation's ripped up. And you're staring at the Lord going, hey, my life was supposed to get better. I feel like I got gypped on this deal. And the guy goes, you don't understand I'm not here to shore up the old thing. I'm here to redo this from the ground up. And he starts laying a foundation that is so true and so sure and so right because only one foundation is strong enough for the building he has planned, and that's himself. I, because we do several studies a week, I, for, I forget where I've said something. of so, so forgive me if this is repeating myself. But, but we had a friend who was a contractor, and he was a great contractor back in the States. And in Cayucas, where we lived, there were several of these houses that had no foundation at all. And the whole place was moving. I mean, because it was up on a hill and the hill sort of was all of it, was basically always kind of making its way into the sea. Sooner or later, if you waited long enough, a couple hundred years, you'd have, you know, you'd have beachfront property sooner or later. And some of you would have houseboats. Well, and I just remember him telling me, he goes, you know, Tone, 
that if a house doesn't have a foundation, everything from that point on is custom. And I'm like, you know, as a pastor, I'm always like, ooh, develop that. And he's like, well, here's the problem. Without a real foundation, you spend your whole, the rest of your time to create things with the appearance that they're standing upright or that they're straight because they can't really be now that there's no foundation. And that was very much what our lives were like if you think about it before Jesus. There were ones where we were propping things up and trying to make them look right and trying to make us look like we knew what we were talking about and trying to, you know, even though we, we really never gave it much thought or made it up as we went along, but we tried to make it sound like, oh, I really know what I'm talking about here. And, and you know, we, areas of our life we just prop up because we knew that if it was given a good hit, it was going to fall over. And somewhere down that, Jesus tore it up and he laid himself down as the foundation because what he's going to build there is a cathedral. He's going to build a sanctuary. He's going to build a temple. And to build that temple, it really needs to be sure at the bottom. And he goes, now, what kind of temple do you want? Do you want one majestic and beautiful? Well, in that case, you can build with gold, silver, and precious stones. Faith, by the way, gold often speaks of faith. Like for instance, Peter says that trials have come that your faith, which is of greater value than even gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. And it would be proven genuine and result in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. That's what he tells us what happens with trials. It's like gold. Silver speaks of redemption. It was the price that was paid to redeem a firstborn. And of course, Jesus was betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. It's the price of redemption. And precious stones speak of devotion as you see the high priest wearing them upon his breast, showing the devotion of God to man and the devotion of our prayers and prayer and worship to him. And I'm like, Can that, is that my, what my life looks like? Is it one really of faith and one of wanting to see others redeemed in Christ and to see my own life as devotion to him? But then there's hay, wood, and stubble. You know, those things that are not faith, but now I'm going to put matters into my own hands. God, back me up. Or, well, this is about me. This isn't about you anymore. Or it really isn't about devoting myself to the Lord, but rather devoting me to me. Because you can build with one or the other. But here's the dangerous thing, beloved, and this will be the whole point of all of this, is that in Psalm 150, our last psalm in Scripture... Well, at least the last in the book of Psalms. We're told to worship the Lord with the trumpet, with the clanging of cymbals. But he also tells us then to worship him with the flute and the lute, the harp. Now, if I had time and we lived closer, I would bring those instruments before you. I have them all. Symbols, by the way, were not those big things like that you beat on Dan's drum set. Symbols were about this size. But when they come together, they make a very resilient and very distinct ding. It's like the sound of two glasses clanging that in perfect harmony, only infinitely louder and more resounding. That's often used, by the way, when you're telling a story, like you ever like listen to things back in the day and it would you hear a sound in a minute that you had to turn the page back when you were really, really little or when Hugo, when you were learning to read English or whatever. But anyways, it's kind of that kind of thing, but they're very, they're still very, very loud. Now a trumpet, is that a loud or a quiet instrument? Any of you ever learn how to play a trumpet? Any of you been around anyone learning to play the trumpet? It's not quiet ever. 
It isn't like, you know, I mean, you stick a mute in the thing. Yeah, it sounds a little bit better in that sense, but it's a very loud instrument. And a trumpet that's traditional, like a silver trumpet, by the way, they're usually about a meter tall. They're not meant to be quiet instruments. They are public instruments. They are public. You're using this to tell a story and you're blowing the trumpet to assemble people. They are public instruments. But do you ever hear a harp, like a little one, like the kind that have 22, they have 22 strings. Maybe you didn't know that. Traditionally, they have 22 strings because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. You can literally play a psalm by reading the letters, if you actually, interesting as it is. They're a very quiet instrument. A flute, a very quiet instrument. Now, you could blow in it really hard, but if you blow in it really hard, it's going to still be much quieter than the quietest you can blow a trumpet, if that makes sense. They're intimate instruments. And might I say, God would like both. There are, in moments like this, we're blowing our trumpets. We're together. We're assembled. And when we're assembled, it is temple time, if you will. And it is public worship. By the way, can I just say how blessed I was today? Just hearing you guys worship God, it so blesses me. But there there is a time for trumpet where it is like, let's get together and let's blow those trumpets. But there also has to be good harp time. Harp time is when no one else is looking, when it's just you alone with God. Now, you don't have to be singing in a moment like that, but you can be. But I ask, what would happen if your life were just one but not the other? Something would be seriously lacking. In some cases, you can have a situation where and most of the time what we find the most dangerous thing that Jesus goes after is there's a whole lot of trumpet going on. Well, you know, and, and you ever talk to somebody, it's like when you're around them, they have to pray in tongues around you. Now, I'm not trying to diss that. Look at if you've got the gift, praise God. I speak in tongues, by the way. I just, I've always kind of, I've been a little nervous here. If I spoke in tongues here, I have a feeling somebody, I'm going to find out that it's some language that, and I'm like, oh, that one. Anyways, but anyways, get me on this though. And I like to ask somebody though that, you know, like you're kind of in that moment, you're fellowshipping the Lord and they're going to pop in with this thing and you're like, and it just, for the moment it distracts. And I'm not saying it always does, of course, but I'm like, let me just ask you, is the only time you speak in tongues in front of people? Because it's all trumpet then. Is the only time that you really pray in front of people? Well, then it's only trumpet. Is the only time that you really worship God when you're in front of people? Then it's trumpet time. What about being in the word? I mean, is the only time that your Bible is open here? Well, then it's just trumpet time. And unfortunately, what you have then is you have a temple that's built with gold, silver, and precious stones, but a house that's built with wood. And that's actually Solomon's problem, isn't it? Is it Solomon's devotion, what we're going to find is, really is much more public than private. What I've learned is this. If you have a real genuine harp time, you can't help but have a good, a good trumpet time. If you have a really decent, intimate harp time. But you can have all the, the trumpet time you want. And it can be just hollow like blowing a horn. After a while, I wonder if, if all of the, that we have is trumpet time, I wonder if it just sounds like a car accident to God, you know, where everyone's honking their horn, but it really isn't going anywhere. 
Well, what we're going to find is everything that's built here actually testifies of that. Now, remember how I said like gold speaks of faith, for instance. Or, and again, don't just like always don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. But let me challenge you on that. Take a look at it from gold from the perspective of faith and silver is a perspective of redemption. Precious stones is that of devotion. Well, what would bronze or brass be? Well, traditionally in scripture, it appears to be something of judgment. And I find that interesting as we look at these things. First of all, again, in those first 12 verses, Solomon set up his house, took him almost twice as long, and he made it full of wood. Did you notice? Man, it is all wood. And I just think it's so interesting that he, here's where he brings in costly stones and gold and all that. It's all here. And then I get to Corinthians. I'm like, whoa, that's exactly what was happening here. There was all these gold and silver and precious stones. But then there was like, then there was this house and it's big and it's full of pillars and, and all of that. And it's all wood. And if there was a fire, man, his houses are done. Verse 13, let's see what happens if our house is all made of wood. What are the things that we see that are challenged? Now King Solomon sent for Huram of Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. His father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill and working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did his work. In essence, there are four things that are going to basically be made. In verses 15 through 22, it'll be the two pillars. In verses 23 through 26, it'll be the sea. In 27 to 37, it'll be the carts. And then in 38 and 39, in essence, it'll be the lavers. Now, verse 15. He cast the two pillars, each one 18 cubits high, 18 cubits high, 9 meters, 27 feet. And a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. Then he made two capitals, cast the bronze. Do you know what a capital is? Do you know what a capital is? It's a thing that sits on top of a pillar. It's more of the decorative thing. And there's primarily three different kinds, Ionian, Capitan, Corinthian, and so forth. But they're basically those, those, you know, everything is just solid, straight shaft. And then there's the cool thing that kind of holds up the house, so to speak. Well, that's what a, that's what a capital is, so you know. The height of one capital was five cubits, seven and a half feet, two and a half uh, meters. The height of the other capital, the same. He made lattice work with wreaths and chain work, and the capitals were on top of the pillars, as they should be. Seven chains for one capital, seven for the other capital. And he made other pillars, two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top. And thus he did for the other capital. The capitals that were on top of the pillars were on the top, were in the hall were the shape of lilies, four cubits. Now these, oddly enough, though, are not holding up anything. And I do think that's interesting. These two pillars are just sitting in the front of the temple. And I gave you a picture so you could kind of at least help see a little bit of that. But it just seems strange to me that in, in uh, Solomon's house, he's got all these pillars holding up the roof and so forth, it appears to be. But here he's got two pillars on the front of everything and they're holding up nothing. I do find that a bit interesting. And he set up the pillars of the vestibule of the house. He set up one pillar on the right side. Its name was Yachin. Try that. Yachin. Oh, good. Give it to me with some oomph. Yachin. Beautiful. It literally means it's he who establishes. In other words, or he establishes. This is the one who will set you up and put you in the right place. This is the one who will cause you to flourish, to be strong or flourish as we read again in Psalm 92. He's the Lord. But he also set up another pillar and the other pillar's name was Boaz. Try Boaz. 
Boaz means in him is strength or vitality, vigor, or if you will, you know, um, like real life is kind of the idea. Vivacity, because he's our savior. So you're standing in front of this big, uh, you know, it's relatively larger uh, temple. And as you're looking at it, there's these two things right here in the front of it all. Now, traditionally, there are those things in a lot of temples. And really, all this is is what you stand for. You know, when you kind of see a building and you see those things in the front of it, this is what this building is about. This is what you stand for. And interesting that the two things are this. It is God who's going to establish you. He will establish you. You can't do it yourself. And the other one is in him is vitality or strength or vivacity. Yeah, Adam. It's in Jerusalem. Yes, good question. Okay, so, so don't miss this. So I'm looking at this and you realize this is going to be the problem with Solomon in the end of it all and ours too. If these two things are only resolved at church, friends, the rest of your life's going to be poo. Can I just be honest? If you don't realize that in him, it's God who's going to actually put you in the right place and establish you and set you up, then you're going to spend your whole life trying to do it yourself and you'll never rest with him. And if you really think that, that you know, though God, that you know inherently that God's the one where real life, vitality, vigor, strength really is, but you're trying to find it in a mate, you're trying to find it in a job, you're trying to find it in getting stuff or in a position or a place, well, then it's all trumpet and it's all going to be hollow in the end. And these two things in the front. And might I just say, the simple thing is the first of the things that we get here is what you stand for. <coughs> in the end of it all, the first thing that's cast in bronze, I remind you, that symbol of judgment. And God's going to judge this on us, what we really stand for. Let me ask you, what you stand for here at church is it the same things you would stand for in your home? Or is it you stand for it here because it would be awkward and weird to actually have that difference? Well, which one needs to change? Because really what we see is, is do we want a house of wood or do we really want our life to be the temple God designed? Well, the first thing we're going to see that's going to go up to on the chopping block is what we really stand for. And you know that because some people will call you. Let's face it, if you're the kind of person where people look and as God continues to grow us, they start trying to crack that stupid, dirty joke or that racist thing or whatever, and then they look at you and are like, oh, forget it. It's not going to be funny to him anyways. That's actually a compliment. You do realize that, right? Well, moving on from that then. Verse 23 says, And he cast... The sea of bronze, sea of cast bronze, 10 cubits, one brim to the other was completely round. Its height was five cubits. Its height was two and a half meters, seven and a half feet. That's a really tall, big cup. It had uh, a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference, circumference all the way around. Below its brim were ornamental buds encircling all around 10 to a cubit all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. And again, I've given you a picture to kind of help picture that. It stood on 12 oxen. Imagine that. Three facing the north, three facing the west, three facing the south, three facing the east. The sea was set upon them and all of their back parts pointed inward. So they were but the but. It was hand breath thick. That's this. And its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It, came, it contained 2,000 baths. Now you, hear, you read that and you went, wow, 2,000 baths. 
I mean, how much water do you fill in your bath? Well, let's just put it this way. 2,000 baths, and its conservative estimate is roughly 52,280 liters, or if you will, 11,500 gallons. That's an awful lot. Now, so get this with me, if you will. You have this giant cup sitting on the backs, if you will, of 12 oxen, a symbol of work, by the way, you know, three facing in each direction, kind of like, if you will, the four living creatures, and we'll talk about that some other time in Revelation, and this big bowl on the top that, in essence, is, is, has to be filled. It's seven and a half or two and, seven and a half feet or two and a half meters high. Now, what guy that's an average of five and a half feet tall is going to be able to go and fill that thing full of 52,280 liters of water? How do you fill that full of water? You don't. Well, how do you get it full of water? God does. It has to rain. You realize the way that that gets full of water is that God rains on it, which we kind of get here. And not only does God actually provide the water then, but he also purifies it because the, the brass gets warm as the sun, as God provides the sun. So that that does is it starts to actually purify the water that sits in this giant bowl. So imagine on one side of the temple is this giant bowl that God has to fill with water that in essence God has to purify with the sun that they have to draw from. Well, what in the world are they using this thing for in the first place? That's kind of an interesting thought. I mean, if you really think about it, it's for service. It's the water for service. Because what it has to do is that's the water they need to use to hose everything down, if you will. It isn't like if you think about it, they have running water. They can't just stick a hose onto a tap somewhere and start hosing down the floor of something after it's covered in blood because of the sacrifices. It was in the simplest sense what was used for public service. And might I say, this is also going to go on the chopping block. First of all, what do you stand for? The second then is what do you serve? Is it going to be something where all of your service is trumpet time or is there quiet service that doesn't get you credit? Let's face it. There are some people in life that the only time they'll ever serve is when it's clearly seen by others. There are other people, man, and I'll be honest, I am not the best quiet servant. I'm sure that surprises you. Uh, I just remember in the beginning when I do things like set up chairs, I would, I just couldn't help myself. I'd ask somebody, what do you think? The chairs look okay. I mean, and it wasn't even like I just wanted everyone to know I set up the chairs. I just couldn't help myself. And the other people, they do that. And they're like, whatever you do, don't tell anyone who did this. But on the other side of it, the Lord wants to make sure that we recognize that service is not just something in the spotlight. Service is something where it's a need and we get to be a part of that. When he says, when you serve, he goes, don't even let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. He goes, man, when you do it, don't blow your trumpets. Interesting that he uses that term. He goes, but rather, let it be something done in secret. Man, the best service is that which nobody really knows where it came from. Because then they have to give God the credit, which is where it belongs in the first place. We're halfway done, and we're moving quick. But let me ask you, as these things are being built in, of brass, is are those things we stand for different in home and here? Is our service different at home or here? Hey man, when kids, when I, when I meet people who are children of pastors and they have a terrible reputation, of course. And you ask, well, what is it? Sometimes what it is, is they just see the politics and they hate it. Let's face it, politics are always going to stink. It doesn't matter what it's about. 
sometimes what they, to be honest, the hardest thing they have to reconcile is the dad or the mom that they see in the limelight at church is just so radically different than what they see at home. Well, you are all welcome, and you're aware of this, to pull either of my kids aside and ask how different I am. Let's face it, I'm kind of a numbskull in front of you. And one of the reasons I am that is because it's just who I am everywhere. But you're welcome to check because I really want you to realize how important that is. So let me ask you, in regards to your what you stand for, is it the same? In regards to how you serve, is it the same? Verse 27, he also made carts of bronze. Notice everything here is being made in bronze. Four cubits in length. For each cart, four cubits was its width, three cubits its height. So in essence, if you think about it, that's four by four by three, or in meters, two by two by one and a half, or in feet, six by six by four and a half feet high. The design of the carts, they had panels. The panels were between frames. On the panels that were between the frames were lion, oxen, cherubim. And the frames of those pedestals on the top, below the lions and oxen, were wreaths of plated work. Each of the four... Um, each had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze. The four feet had supports under the laver were supports of cast bronze. Now, I could develop all of this, but I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. <laughs> Almost pun intended there. But it's like, so he's giving us great detail, obviously. And if we were the kind, we could spend a whole Bible study on each of these items and all of the things from the decor and how they pertain to the Gospels and how they pertain to the living creatures. And there's so much more to develop. But as we go through this the first time around at our fellowship here, I want us to get the the real basic fundamentals that you can dive into the other stuff as you will as well. And so it just says, verse 31, it's opening out inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter. The opening, now you're aware of the fact, right? You half it and that's a meter. So you can do that math, right? It's opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, or if you're a foot kind of person, it's just times it by another half of it. I'm sorry, add another half to it. One and a half cubits inside and diameter and also the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were four wheels, which is always healthy, uh, which means it wasn't like that kind of thing where the, those carts that, you know, those poor guys that have to kind of wheel around and then try to figure out how to stop. It's got four wheels, you know. And, of course, you're probably aware they would probably then be round. Uh, the, and it says the wheels were joined to the cart by axles. The height of the one wheel was about a half a cubit. The workmanship of the wheels, like the workmanship of a chariot wheel, their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. Everything about it, they're all bronze. And there were, except for the wood panels. And there were, and even that was, those were covered. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were parts of the cart itself. On the top of the cart, at the height of the half a cubit, it was perfectly round. And at the top of the cart, its flanges and its panels were the same casting. And on the plates and its flanges and on the panels, he engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Wherever there was a clear space on them with wreaths all around, thus he made the ten carts. And all of them were of the same mold, one measure, one shape. Ten of them, they all looked the same, and they were these big, long things. Well, what in the world are you putting in those carts? Well, verse 38. He put ten lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths. Now, 40 baths, again, is about 880 liters, or about 232 gallons. Each laver was about four cubits, two meters, six feet. On each of the ten carts was a laver. So why are there ten lavers? Because there were 10 carts. Why are there 10 carts? Because there were 10 lavers. Thank you. That was really easy. So what in the world are those? 
right? He says, put five on the right side of the house, ten on the, and then five on the left side of the house. Notice he calls it a house and not just a temple. Or he set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. Interesting, because on the right side of the house would have been the place that would be that table of showbread, for instance, and in, you know, in the holy place, not the holy place. So, what are these things? Well, we have this giant bath, and I remind you, this giant bath was there for the public service. So what are these things for? These are actually for the private sacrifice. So if you will, these are the things that the priests would use to continue to wash their hands. They were the things that were used for the personal sacrifices to keep the utensils clean and so forth. So they needed to be able to be wheeled around. And I mean, which one of you wants to actually push this baby around, if you think about it, with, if you will, 880 liters or 232 gallons of water in the thing? Chances are it's not going to be extremely light, especially when it's made of bronze. But as you're pushing it around and as a spout on it, if you will, so you can do your own personal sacrifice and you can help others with it. As a priest, you can help others with it. You're rinsing off things so they're not all gooey and yucky and such. So might I just say again, here's the other area that goes up on the block. When it comes down to it, there are three basic areas that are listed here. There's the pillars in the front. There's the sea on the right side. And then there's the carts with the lavers on both sides. So might I say, in your own life, and this is what I want to, this is what I've been taking to the Lord today as well, is I'm looking and I'm going, all right, Lord, how about me? First of all, what I stand for. Is it any different at home than it is here? Is there anything that really gets my goat here because it should, but doesn't get my goat at home? Is there anything that burns my heart with passion here that doesn't, for whatever reason, at home? Or worse yet, is there something my heart would be burned with passion that I shouldn't at home that I wouldn't hear? Because there is no line between secular and sacred for a Christian. Everything belongs to him. There's no hidden part that God doesn't get his hands into. I remind you, he tore up the thing from the floor up so he could build the foundation and build the house so that all of it belongs to him. Every part of my life belongs to him. And as every part of my life belongs to him, what do I stand for? And then with that, well, let me ask, what about my public service? Is it different here than my private service at home? Would I be quicker to get up and help you than I would my wife or children? And then, well, what about my personal sacrifice? How am I in the word or in prayer? How am I in surrender? Is that just a public thing? If so, what a terrible show of trumpets that would be meaningless if my home life is different than that. And what we realize in all of this is, is that poor Solomon He's really good with trumpet. Remember how he gave this huge sacrifice back at Gibeon? He knows how to blow that trumpet. But you know what's going to be in his house? A thousand women that he is sexually active with. Now, even to this day, I imagine there's probably guys that would brag about that kind of thing. But not us. That's nothing to brag about here. Purity is to boast in here. And that would even be, that would be the move of the Lord. So, let's close this up. Huram made the lavers, shovels and bowls, the utensils. Huram finished doing all the work that he was, what he was to do for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars, the two networks covering the bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars. The 10 carts, the 10 lavers on the carts. One C the 12 oxen under the sea that held it up, the pots, the shovels, the bowls, all these articles which Hunan made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. So there they were. 
what I stand for, what I serve, what I sacrifice. In the plains of the Jordan, the king had them cast the clay molds. Interesting, at a place called Sukkot and Zeratan. Why is that important? Because Zeratan was where God stopped the water by when they crossed the Jordan in the first place to enter in. You get that, by the way, for what it's worth in Joshua 3.16. Should be easy to remember because it's our, it's our 3.16 of Joshua. And he tells us, by the way, this, you might find this interesting, he stopped the water of the Jordan, not the Red Sea, but the Jordan, at Adam beside Zeratan. Whoop, did you? No, actually, Jordan, it wasn't originally called Jordan because Jordan, because it flows from Dan. Dan was the farther northernmost part of Israel and the water flowed from there, so they called it Yordan. Dan, by the way, means... Dan, what does Dan mean? Good judgment. I'm giving you the credit on that. It means judgment. Yordan means from judgment. Now, Daniel means the judgment of God. Dan means judgment. The flow of judgment gets stopped for them to cross into the promised land. They get stopped at a place called Adam. Adam, what does Adam mean? It means a man. Yeah. And then we have this place called Zeratan. Zeratan means their distress. God stopped the flow of judgment at a man beside their distress. That's the story of Jesus. And that's what got us into the promised land. And that's, interestingly enough, where they were making the molds for this, at that place. So Solomon didn't weigh the articles because there were so many. The weight of the bronze couldn't be determined. Too much bronze to weigh. Thus Solomon had finished the furnishings that he made for the house of the Lord. And notice he adds this at the end. The altar of gold. Where does the altar of gold go? Does anyone know? The altar of gold would be the altar of incense. It's inside the temple. He made the table of gold, which was in the showbread. Where is that placed? Inside the temple. The lampstands of pure gold, where were they put? Inside the temple. Five on the right side, five on the left. Interesting. On the outside were the lavers. On the inside were the lampstands. Five aside. With the flowers, the lamps, the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both of the doors in the inner room, that's the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, and the doors of the main hall of the temple. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold. Notice it's silver as well there. Gold and the furnishings. And he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Now, let me ask you a simple question. Listed here were outside items and inside items. Which were tended to first in this chapter? The things on the outside or the things on the inside? The outside. And the end of it, which then, how does this end with the things on the inside? The things on the outside were made of brass. The things on the inside were made of gold. Interesting. Because it seems to me that that's the problem, is that everything went from the outside in. Did you notice that? That's what happened in regards to the structure, and that's what happens with the furniture. And this is the danger of what happens when we try to be a Christian from the outside in. In other words, we learn how to do all the practices first, but we don't learn a heart of devotion. 
We learn how to make sure we pray in a way that other people could think is cool, but we never really learn how to talk with God. And what happens in the end of it all is we developed a fantastic trumpet life, but we have no harp life whatsoever. And that becomes, inevitably, that kind of life will ultimately fizzle and die. And ultimately, what will happen is you learn how to do all this stuff on the outside, but even you know it's a bit of a sham, and your inside's still craving for, and your inside's actually going shopping online for something that God has no part in, while the outside of you is still basically looking like you're really awesome at church. And I'm here to say to you that he who was planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. He'll be like a cedar. The righteous are like a cedar in Lebanon. And you can build your house like you want. You can make it with just wood. But your life is intended to be a temple. Your life is intended to be in. Not just part of it. Not just the time that you get to spend at church. Not just the time we spend in study. But our whole life is supposed to be a song. It isn't like this is our moment in color and then you walk out and everything is just gray, black, and white from this point. Our whole life is intended to be a song. And with that, God loves the part the heavens to hear you pray. Not just when we pray together, but when you break out that harp that no one else hears. Now, I know this is a musician and is a songwriter. There are many songs I've written that no one else will hear but God because they're actually my harp songs, if you will. The song is just me and the Lord. And some of those are my favorite. But it's like I know that it would almost be, it would be wrong to sort of break those out. So there are times of sweet intimacy. But then there are times I get to be with you and enjoy the Lord with you. And we all get to sit there and blow those trumpets and enjoy him. But if all I have is this trumpet with you, it will be shallow and silly compared to what it could be when it's really rich to the core. So I just want to pray tonight for you and for me as believers. Because Jesus certainly had both, didn't he? He would get alone to pray. And then he would look at his, the temple and he'd go, what is wrong? This place was supposed to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. And the reason he could be so torn up about that is because he already knew how great it could be to be in prayer. And it was so beautiful that his disciples would say, teach us not how to pray, teach us to pray. And when he died on the cross, that was a trumpet blown, but he could never have died on the cross like he did had he not first died to himself before that in his harp time. Now Paul would say to live is Christ and to die is gain. And unless that can be, if you will, the song of our harp time, our service will always be selfish. Jesus' death shows us that a true trumpet is blown after a real harp, and his resurrection only shows us what that should look like now. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this beautiful time. I want to thank you, Lord, for a chapter that is quite technical, and yet in all of that, we get to be warned and challenged. It starts with but. Those seven years were used, in essence, to build your house, God. But Solomon had a lot more going on for his own. And the things that were on the outside were given so much press in this chapter. 
the pillars that would be on the outside to say, this is what we stand for. God, you establish. And only you, in you is life, is strength, is vivacity. The sea for which then public service could be performed. The lavers so that sacrifice could be done. And yet for all of those things, it seems like we get this quick blip at the end where a whole bunch of other little things that were of gold were thrown inside the temple. And I don't want that to be my life where the outside perimeter is all full of these things that have given great attention and yet the inside is just a second footnote. I pray for everyone here that we would develop a beautiful personal harp time where we would be in your word and expect you to speak to us where we would listen and speak in prayer where our hearts would team over and we'd be so full of adoration and things so God I just pray tonight for every one of us Jesus as you died for us on the cross publicly declaring and paying for us, declaring that you are committed to us and that you were willing to pay everything. And yet you would never have qualified had you not had a full life of harp, full sacrifice, of not meeting the, the desires and the temptations that were thrown your way because we read that you were tempted in every way yet without sin. And had you surrendered to any of those privately, you would have not been then qualified to offer the sacrifice yourself. So your cross experience was the culmination of 30 plus years of complete sacrificial harp time. And when you died on that cross for the whole world to see you hang naked in shame, you were in every way qualified to do so and yet were no way deserving of that. But when you died there, you paid my price. Just like scripture promised for my sins, the Father has laid upon you the, the sin of us all, the iniquity of us all. And you were buried and just like scripture promised on the third day you rose again and you offer us that new life. And that new life is more than just public declarations. Though there are public declarations. But you did that to be with us individually, personally. And may we never forget that. So God, we do pray. Please make us people tonight who openly embrace you from the inside out. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Friends, I want to thank you for the opportunity to serve you in the Word tonight. And I just want to make sure, even as people might be watching online, that if you've never accepted that gift of Jesus Christ, there's always needs to be an opportunity to say yes. The Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And that's a public declaration, but that starts with a personal heart of believing. If you're willing to believe in your heart, that's the inside. There's the lute. There's the, the harp time. And then confess it with your mouth. There's the trumpet time. Both happen. And if that's you, just pray this prayer with me. God, I'm a sinner. Jesus, you paid the price for my sin on the cross, dying for me as Scripture promised, was buried, and just like Scripture promised, you rose again, and you asked for me to accept that gift and declare you Lord, and I do. 
You are the resurrected Lord and you are my Savior who has paid my price. And for that, I say thank you. I give my life to you now. Have me now, I pray. And rebuild me from the floor up, from the foundation up. Jesus, in your name.